This last month or so, we've been reflecting on the Advent season. So we spent some time talking about things like hope and joy and love and peace and and ultimately the coming of Christ that we celebrated on Christmas Eve. And before that, we'd been studying the book of Matthew together. We'd been looking at Christ's kingship and how Christ comes and announces that a kingdom has broken into this world and that he is the king of this kingdom. Before we get back to Matthew... We're going to be spending this morning together in Galatians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Feel free to open up there. One of my favorite things that I get to do whenever I go home is to spend some time with my family, talking about other family that I never got the chance to know. know. My my dad likes to tell me about my great-grandparents, great-granddaddy Fred, and great-grandma Minnie. And one of his favorite things that he would share about them is how he would get to go over to their house and they would always have a really nice garden that was out. And they'd get to go and pick some foods and great-grandma Minnie would always make my dad some salads or some soups or something while he was there. And he also loved to go out to eat with them. And he noticed something really interesting when he'd go out to eat with my great-grandma Minnie. He said that whenever he would go out to eat with with his grandparents, that By the end of the meal, somehow, great-grandma Minnie's purse was always full of some random assortment of food from that dinner. If there were extra dinner rolls, they would slowly work their way into her purse. If there were like little packets of butter or jelly, those would always find their way into their purse. If there was like a lemon garnish on a, you know, on a glass of water, that would find its way into the purse. And one day he he asked her, he said, Grandma Minnie, why do you keep putting all of this food in your purse? And that's when she shared with him, well, Brad, I grew up in the Great Depression. There wasn't food for me when I was growing up in the house. And this lingering desire for security for food, something that drove her to always be storing away food, to have some kind of tangible and physical reminder that we are secure and there is food. Even though there was a garden out back that she would use to not only feed herself and and my dad, even though that they would go out to dinner and there was money in the bank account that she could look back on and see, okay, we can go buy food, there was a lingering insecurity and a lingering fear that there was not enough, a lingering fear of lack. And I think it would be easy for someone to come up to my great-grandma Minnie and to have told her, okay, you look at your garden, there's, there's food there, and you can go look at the checkbook, you will be okay, you can go to the grocery store if you need to, And I think that that there are lots of encouragements to to point at tangible things for these kinds of tangible insecurities that we have about things like food. But what about things that aren't visible that we want to have some kind of security in? What are the the kinds of tangible things that we can point to and what are the things that, that we can look back at for invisible realities that are true of us? The Christian life is largely a life that deals with internal realities, things that we can't really see or perceive happening to ourselves. And oftentimes, what ends up happening is we experience a kind of insecurity and a kind of fear about our security and our faithfulness with Christ. All too often, when it comes to invisible things like our faith, we strive to secure it in visible and tangible ways. And it's into this kind of insecurity that Paul speaks in Galatians chapter 2. He, he wants us to draw our attention away from looking at visible things for security, and he points us to something greater. 
he points us to the hope of the gospel. The passage confronts the way that we try and secure and receive righteousness with the gospel reality of Christ's righteousness. It's because we depend on Christ's righteousness alone that we get to fully commit ourselves to him. So we're going to talk about that by talking about how we receive Christ's righteousness and then two ways that we can fully commit to Christ. So I'm going to read the passage. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. The verses should be up on the, on the screens behind to follow along. And also, just as an aside, if you don't have a Bible and you would like to take the Pew Bible home in front of you, we would love for you to do that as a way to not only follow along with the scripture today, but as a way for you to have a Bible and to, to remember your morning together with us. So I'm going to pray after reading Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to talk about this passage together. God's word says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you today and we're grateful that we get to hear from you in your word, that you're a living and a speaking God. We have a strong confession that this word that we've read truly is your word, that it's living and it's active and that it can change us. So, Father, we pray that you would make our belief as strong as our confession. God, that we would believe that you are speaking to us now, that you're changing us now. Lord, we, we want to be alive to your word. So we pray, Spirit of God, that you would do that in us, that you would make us alive to your word, that you would give us light to understand that you would give us minds and hearts that are open to receive from you what you would have for us. Would the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is likely a familiar passage for many of you in Galatians 2. If you were part of the Navigator ministry, then it's probably like the first Bible verse that you ever heard get talked about with the navigators. If you've been around churches a while and, and heard gospel presentations, this is an incredible scripture that presents the truth and the hope of the gospel. And I think to get a, a deeper and a, and a clearer understanding of why Paul is drawing this out, we have to understand what's going on in the rest of Galatians. Galatians is a letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia. That's it's in southern Turkey, modern Turkey. And among other things in that letter, Paul is, is addressing a division in the church about table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. In the old Jewish law, there were external things that separated the Jewish people, God's chosen people, from Gentiles, everybody else. And one part of the law that externally separated Jews from Gentiles was who you ate with. It was who was invited to your dinner table. Food was deeply related to worship at that time. And who you ate with was a, was a symbol of, of union with that person 
and what they worshipped. To eat with somebody is to say, I affirm and agree with your worship. So, for the Jewish people who were committed to the sole deity and kingship of Yahweh, of the one true and living God, there could be no table fellowship with Gentiles. So, Paul, here in Galatians 2, tells us that now on this side of Christ, on this side of redemptive history, now that Christ has come and and fulfilled the law, that there were Jewish Christians who were now trying to live and use the old Jewish law as a means of demonstrating who was righteous and who wasn't. The Jewish Christians in Galatia were reverting to the practice of only eating with other Jews to demonstrate that they really were God's chosen people. And in doing so, they were undermining the unity of the church. One of the great truths of the gospel is that it unites all people together. So for the Jewish Christians to be imposing this Jewish law and this Jewish custom on the church was to inherently undermine the gospel. It's to say that there was something else that needed to be added to the gospel. And this is what moves Paul to point out the inability of the law to give righteousness in verse 19. Look back at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. What an incredible thing for Paul, who is a Jewish Pharisee, to be saying. A teacher of the law, somebody who knew and studied the law, somebody who devoted their life to the Bible. And Paul here is saying that the law ended up killing him. He hoped it would bring righteousness. He hoped it would bring life and blessing. And as he sought after following the law, all he found was that he died. It's interesting because this is almost exactly what God said as he gave the law to his people. God gave the law with a covenant. And with a covenant, there were blessings and life in keeping the covenant. And there were curses and death for disobeying the covenant. That's what God gave to his people when he gave them the law. With obedience to the covenant, there would be the promise of blessing, the promise of fellowship with God, the promise of righteousness, a right standing with him. And disobeying the covenant and disobedience to the covenant brought the curses of the covenant, brought things like death and separation from God. So the law that Paul had hoped would bring him righteousness, would bring him life, was ultimately killing him. And he expands on this a lot in Romans chapter 7. That would be a great place for you to go and to study sometime after this, to go and look at how Paul understands and relates to the law. But one key idea from Romans 7 that he points out is because of our, our sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam in the fall. Because Adam, who was our, our federal head, Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned and rebelled against God, they broke his covenant with them, that all of humanity inherits a fallen sinful nature. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean that all we do is sin all the time and that and that we're as bad and as awful and as messed up as we could be, but it does mean that there is a bent in us that is turned against God, and that one way or another, that bent against God always works itself out in disobedience to the covenant. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 7, and it's one of the purposes of the law is that it points out our inability to keep it. You notice how Paul says that he died through the law in verse 19. The law was death to him, because if he tried to go through the law to find life, 
He found that he couldn't keep it. He found that he would die. Looking for righteousness in the law itself was the wrong place to look. And all too often, we search for righteousness in the wrong places as well. We want to secure righteousness through tangible means that we can control, that we have our own measuring stick that we can look at and say, yes, I am righteous. Yes, I am pursuing righteousness. I think one way that we can do this and that it slips into our life is through people-pleasing. In our quest to try and confirm that we're righteous, both to ourselves and to other people, we end up fearing other people and being consumed by their opinions and thoughts about us, and, and we give ourselves to this endless task of trying to please other people to try and prove something about ourselves. It, it's a perversion of good service. It's a perversion of the humble service that we ought to give to one another, where rather than trying to truly give to people out of what we have, we're trying to earn and take and get something from them. We want to get our own righteousness from them. We want to get them to confirm that we are who we want to be and that we think we are. We end up turning other people and their opinions into idols that dominate our identity. And when we wind up pursuing righteousness in this way, we die. We cannot find righteousness in, in other people's opinions of us or in, in trying to get other people to confirm that we're righteous. It, it's, it's a wrong pursuit coming from a wrong place. We can never please everybody. There's always more people to please. It's, it's a pursuit into death to try and find life through people-pleasing. But you may have noticed Galatians 2 isn't addressed primarily to people-pleasers. It's addressed to the, to the Jewish Christians in the churches in Galatia. It's addressed to, to the good church people. It's addressed to the people that would show up week in and week out, to the people that were very adamant and studious about studying the Bible, and to the people who were concerned with the strictest measures of holiness in the Bible. It was written to the people who, who cared so, so much about every letter of the law that they knew it inside and out. The people who were trying to parse out who's righteous and who's not according to their strictest standards. And if you read earlier in Galatians 2, Paul points out that the Jewish Christians in Galatia, by doubling down on this kind of righteousness, were not only killing themselves, but they were killing the other Gentile Christians that were with them. They were placing a crushing burden on them that nobody could fulfill. In talking to Peter, Paul says, we were both Jewish and we both remembered that we couldn't fulfill this law. And now, by trying to live it out, you're, you're, you're putting it on these Gentile Christians and they can't live it out either. The reality of pursuing righteousness through any kind of law-keeping, whether it's biblical law-keeping or our own law-keeping and our own desires and standards for other people, is that it's a fruitless, death-filled pursuit of righteousness. We can never meet God's perfect standard of holiness and we couldn't even meet our own perfect standard of holiness. There's one theologian named Francis Schaeffer who famously invited everyone to think about and imagine that there was an invisible tape recorder hanging around your neck and that throughout your whole life, this invisible tape recorder would only click on and off whenever you said, a, well, you know, people just ought to do this or you know what you should do? You should really do that kind of statements. And he said that it, at the end of your life, that if you could play that invisible tape recorder, could you meet your own standards? 
could you meet the standards that you're placing on other people, all of the, well, you oughtas and you shoulds? I don't think we have to think very hard to realize that we can't. We couldn't and could never meet our own standards, much less God's standards. Any pursuit of righteousness that comes from within ourselves, that comes from something that we try and work up and get from other people or impose on other people is a pursuit of righteousness that ultimately leaves us in spiritual death. We can't do it. We will fall short. But Paul says that it was actually in dying to the law that he was able to find the very thing that the law promised, life with God. Look back at verse 20 and the end of verse 19. Notice how he says that he died to the law, through the law, in order that he might live to God. It's actually in dying not only through the law, but to the law that he finds the exact thing that he was hoping for. The law is a great thing, not because through it we, or because through it we understand our sinfulness and it actually points us to Jesus. One of the great goodnesses and kindnesses of God in giving the law is that it reveals our need for righteousness. It reveals our need and it reveals our lack of righteousness. And what it should drive us to is not to despair and to be crushed by it or to go and crush other people with it, but it points us to Jesus. Paul says that dying to the law through the law has actually given him life with God in the most intimate way possible through union with Jesus. And it's a total union with Jesus. Paul paints an incredible picture of why and how this union with God, this union with the Son of God, matters and plays out in his life. How could it be that the law points to Christ? Well, it's because Jesus is the perfectly obedient one. I think we often make the mistake of imagining Jesus' life like a highlight reel. You know, we, we just want to like watch and, and think about all of the best parts. We just actually celebrated one of them, Christ's birth. And we tend to skip over a lot of his life and, and we get to, well, there's the miracle working ministry and, and the teaching and, and all of the owning the Pharisees in, in the temple and there's the healings and the casting out demons and And then there's the death and resurrection and the ascension, and that's the sum of Jesus' life. And it's not wrong to highlight those things. It's not wrong to emphasize those things. But if those are the only things about Jesus' life that we think about, I think we miss one of the beautiful pictures of what Jesus offers to us through his death, and that's access to his life. All of Jesus' life was perfectly sinless. This is what some theologians call Jesus' active obedience, that he actively obeyed the law. You know, Jesus was a man like like us. Jesus was a human being. He had a, a human nature, and he was like us in every respect. He was tempted as we were, yet he was without sin. Jesus' whole life was perfect. Have you ever imagined what Jesus' life was like before all of the teaching and, and the preaching and the miracle working? I mean, he was, he was a, a, a normal man for most of his life. He probably worked his father's trade. He was a carpenter. And he faithfully, day in and day out, went and did carpentry. And he he's perfectly did his work. Not just in like the quality of his work, but perfectly talking with customers, perfectly talking with other vendors, perfectly talking to the people who he was helping and building things for. 
You ever think that Jesus was a friend to people? You know, he was, he was clearly friends with Lazarus as he mourned over Lazarus' death. And Jesus spent all of those years as a perfect friend, perfectly encouraging, perfectly kind, perfectly generous. Maybe Jesus was, was an uncle. He had, he had siblings and maybe they had kids. And Jesus was the perfect uncle. Not like the weird uncle that sometimes shows up to holiday gatherings, but he was the perfect uncle. Every teachable moment, every kind hug, every warm gesture. Think about all of the things that Jesus had done throughout his life. That you and I also get to do the roles that you and I often fail in. How often do we sin at work? How often are we poor to our family and to our friends? How often are we, are we bad in the ways that we talk about and with other people? And Jesus did this perfectly. One of the great gifts of Jesus' life is not just the highlight real things that we get to look at, but ultimately that he lived all of it perfectly on our account. And that's why Paul's identification and union with Jesus is so important. Through our faith and union with Jesus, there's an exchange that occurs. Jesus takes the punishment for our disobedience that we incur through our failure to keep the covenant, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. He says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Being united to Christ's death and his resurrection through faith is the means by which we receive Christ's perfect record of righteousness. Paradoxically, it's the death in the law that kills Paul that helps him realize he needs to find life only in the perfectly righteous one, only in Christ. And this life is lived through faith. You know, through our faith in Jesus, we don't merely receive a, a clean slate. We also receive his perfect credit of righteousness from his active obedience. It means that for every sin, for every failure, for every moment of shame and frustration, there's a credit of righteousness and holiness and forgiveness and glory that we have access to in Christ. For every, for every failure, there's more than just forgiveness. There's more than just a, a coming back to zero, but there's actually a whole credit of righteousness that we gain through faith in Christ. We're not spiritually impoverished in Christ. We're not in this precarious situation of trying not to go back to zero in Jesus. In fact, we... We're richly lavished with more righteousness than we could ever possibly fathom. And that's a sturdy hope. You know, one of my favorite things about Christmas time was getting to help my dad set up and take down the Christmas decorations. Because that meant that I got to climb into and out of the attic on a ladder. And that was just like the coolest thing to me. But there was one part that I always hated. It always made me unbelievably anxious. And that's when we got to the Christmas tree ornaments. And I always can remember my hand shaking so bad as my dad is reaching down and handing me this box of precious memories that have been collected from different places and people. And I'd take the box and think, I cannot possibly do anything wrong with this box or I am going to ruin Christmas. One misstep and everything is shattered. 
There was this horrible fear of like, I could totally destroy the whole holiday season and all of this goodness with one wrong turn. That's not what the righteousness of Christ that we receive is like. What we receive in the righteousness of Christ is a forgiveness and a credit of righteousness that is so strong and so sturdy that not only can it survive hitting the floor, but it's actually going to drag us through the ground and into eternity with God forever. Our faith unites us and identifies us with Christ. And that means that the life that we now live is not marked just by our faith in Jesus, but actually by the faithfulness of Jesus himself. Jesus' faithfulness not only in giving his life for ours at the cross, but the whole life that he lived before that. The great hope of the gospel is that not only do we have access to a forgiveness and a clean slate, but there is a real, tangible righteousness that can be found. And it's not found in any one thing that we work up or do in ourselves, but it's found in depending on and believing in and trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. His tangible life that he lived. The human life that he lived on our behalf that we could not. That's our sturdy hope. That's our steady anchor and security in righteousness. I hope that this gives you a bigger view of the gospel. That you don't just have a a tenuous forgiveness. You're not just on kind of this, this, we've kind of reconciled term with God. But there is actually a whole credit of righteousness and there is a, a real friendship that we have with God, a real relationship that we have with God through Christ. And the beautiful part of it is that we have it because God loved us and gave himself for us. Look back at verse 20. These are some of the most intensely personal words that Paul can speak about the gospel. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And what did the Son of God do? He loved me and he gave himself for me. He loved me. He gave his whole life for me. His whole life. Not just his death, but all of the years of of being a perfect carpenter and a perfect friend and a perfect uncle. All of that he gave to me for every failure that I have in those areas. He gave himself for me completely and fully. In all of the ways that I fail, Christ offers himself and his perfection to us because he loves us. The Son of God who created the whole universe the one who's holding all of your atoms together and the atoms in this room together by the word of his power. This is the God who loved you and he gave himself for you. It's it's the biggest gospel that we could ever possibly hope for. It's bigger and better than we could hope for. It's a gospel that not only forgives our failures, but gives us something we could never, ever, ever have on our own. A real righteousness. And do you notice that it's a, it's a past tense gave, right? The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's, it's not a conditional giving. Paul says it like this in, in Romans chapter five. He says that, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The completed work of Jesus invites us to live a life free of the crushing weight of earning righteousness. Friends, there's a freedom for us in Christ. We don't have to be crushed by not only the weight of earning righteousness, but the weight of trying to to secure and prove our righteousness. 
because that's been sealed for us in Christ. The gospel even reorients us now to the law. This thing that used to kill us is now actually not something we do away with, but it's actually something that we can aim to live according to because of the righteousness of Jesus. Our relationship with the law in Christ is no longer this thing that I'm trying to strive for and reach for and earn, but something that's already been accomplished on my behalf so I can live it out because it's true of me that I have the righteousness of one who has lived it out. And what that means is that when we fail and when we continue to sin and when we fall, we don't need to be crushed by the weight of the curse of sin again. Instead, we look to the one who gave himself to be crushed for us. When you sin, you don't need to be crushed by the weight of it, but instead you can look to and hope in Jesus, the Son of God in his sturdy hope and righteousness, the one who who loved you and who gave himself for you. As Christians, we can functionally live in ways that reject that this is true. Verse 21, it's almost a little bit sobering the way that he starts out. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. There are other translations that say, I do not frustrate the righteousness of God. This idea of impeding or getting, the way, getting in the way of the grace of God. And he says that the way that we do this is to live as though righteousness could be found in any place other than Christ. Here he's particularly addressing the law to the Jewish Christians. He's reminding them, if you go and you, your response to receiving the grace of God is to live like you don't have it and to live like you're still trying to earn it, then you've said that the death of Christ wasn't necessary. You've said that at best you just needed a little bit of help along the way. The reality of the, the right way to receive Christ's forgiveness is to fully commit ourselves to him. And there are two broad ways that we can do this. We can commit to him as our head and we can commit to him and his body. One of the ways our union with Christ should be lived out is by giving ourselves over to his leadership. We give ourselves to Jesus as our head, meaning we submit to follow his way of life. Do you notice there's something a bit strange that Paul talks about in the passage? There's lots of death and life. And he says that somehow he's been crucified and and he's died, but now he continues to live. And what Paul's trying to draw out is that he's still really alive. There is still a flesh and blood Paul who is writing Galatians, but that his identity is now firmly aligned with Jesus so that his bodily life is now the theater for God to live out his righteousness through. His body is now the place where Jesus' righteousness is demonstrated through the world. It's a whole new life that's entirely defined by faith in Christ's faithful work. Romans 6, 4, and 5 says it like this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This newness of resurrection life is defined by the faithfulness of Jesus. We don't live in the way that we used to live, trying to earn and secure and receive righteousness. But instead, we receive the righteousness of Christ by committing to follow him. Now, wait a minute. That that sounds a little bit like the thing we were just talking about, like trying to, to follow and obey the letter of the law. 
but it's actually Jesus who is living out this righteousness in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to ask the Galatians in just a few short verses that what was begun by the flesh, are you going to try and finish it by, or what was begun by the Spirit, are you going to try and finish it by the flesh? Are you, who was saved by the power and the righteousness of God, going to continue to try and live as if you can try and earn it? And the obvious question is no, and we're driven to depend on the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the one who takes Christ's work and applies it to our life. He takes Christ's work and he makes it true of us. It's part of God's triune salvation, that the indwelling Spirit is the one who places us in the Son, who brings us to the Father. God has fully opened up his life to us, and now he brings us back in through the Spirit's work of putting us in the Son to bring us to the Father. It's God's complete work of salvation. It is God's work from top to bottom. It's the indwelling Spirit taking what is Christ's and making it true of us. And this doesn't happen in these big leaps and bounds. It doesn't happen in, in these big landmark moments of just, I'm going to stop sinning now and forever. But Paul describes that it happens degree by degree, day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision. We know that one day we're going to look exactly like Jesus and we can be confident that God is working this out in all of the little moments of our life. We can be confident and trust that the righteousness of Jesus will have its true and full effect, not as we try and forcefully bring it out of ourselves, not as we try and white-knuckle obedience our way through, but as we allow the Spirit of God to really be the one who changes us, who lives out Christ's life in our life. That's one of the ways that we can be committed to full union with Jesus. We'll touch very briefly on the last way that we can be committed to Jesus fully, and that's by being committed to his body. As much as Jesus is the head of the body, the rest of the body is also his. The church is called the body of Christ. And when we depend on Christ alone for righteousness, we commit ourselves fully to the body of believers. To be dependent on Jesus' righteousness alone is to create an otherworldly kind of unity within the church. That's because the chief thing and the most true thing that defines each one of us is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness and who we are in Christ, the identity that we receive from Jesus is truer about us than if we're a man or a woman, than if we're a slave or if we're free, than where we're from. The identity of Jesus is the truest and deepest thing about us. And to be committed to Christ's righteousness alone is to look at other believers around you to look at the people who are even in the other service and say, you are made in the image of God fully with his righteousness and to be committed to that kind of unity. And one of the best places that we can experience this is here at the Lord's table. We're going to take communion in a moment. And when we eat the, the small meal together, it's because we're all feasting on the same righteousness. We're feasting on, on the same Christ, the same Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. It's it's a reminder of the wedding feast that's coming when we all get to share together in heaven in full union and fellowship with Christ. You know, I hope that, that one day that's where I get to meet my great-grandma Minnie is, is at that wedding feast and at that table fellowship. One, because there is certainly enough food for everyone, that there is no putting food in the purse. But more than that, because there is a true righteousness for all of us, a righteousness that's sufficient 
for all of us, a righteousness that binds us all together as we are bound up to Christ who is our head. This is the gift of the gospel that we experience as we depend on Christ's righteousness alone without trying to earn it or secure it in any other way. Let's pray together.